Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, beginning at verse 11. As they were on their way, there were some members of the guard who went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the chief priests had assembled with the elders and had reached a decision, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came at night and stole him away while we were sleeping. If the governor hears about it, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. After the soldiers took the money, they did as they were instructed. And this story has been repeated among the Jews until this day. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, our risen Savior. Of all the holidays of the festivals of the Christian church here, I think between Christmas and Easter, Easter is probably the most well-known as to what its subject matter is, right? I think all of the children in here could tell us what Easter is all about. I would dare say that you could probably stop just some random stranger on the street and they would be able to tell you what Easter is all about. It's a very simple message. Jesus rose from the dead. But it's the very simplicity and, and importance of that message that means that the devil tries his hardest to rip this day, this festival, this truth, this most fundamental element of the Christian faith out of our hands. He tries to pervert it, to distort it, to make us look past it. Two main ways of doing that. First way he tries to make us lose our grasp of Easter is to trivialize it. He he wants us to trivialize Easter by making it all about bunnies and pastel colored dresses and family gatherings and Cadbury eggs. And if he succeeds in doing that, in us to treat Easter as trivially as the world does, well, then Easter has become totally meaningless and there's absolutely no point for us to be here. If that's what Easter is about, you're wasting your time, you can get up and leave right now. Speaking of Cadbury eggs, I have a bone to pick with them. Can we all just admit that they're terrible? (laughs) And that they should come with a little certificate that says one free cavity with each one of them. The devil can't trivialize Easter, then he will try to spiritualize Easter. In the sense that he will try to convince us that, you know, that's all nonsense, that Jesus was crucified, put to death, and then put in a grave, and, oh, oh, okay, so all of a sudden he woke up and he's alive again, and no one was there to witness it? He tries to spiritualize. It's kind of like that idea of, of when a loved one passes away. And, and people say, Grandma's still up there. She's watching over us. And, and she's really living on in our hearts. Well, she's still dead, right? And if, if Jesus is just living on in our hearts, if he's just living on in the, the words that he spoke, again, Easter is totally meaningless. We would be better off not being here, better off doing something, chasing Easter bunnies or... Or, or eating brunch with our families, because if 
Jesus is not physically risen, Easter is meaningless. We're doomed to live short and meaningless lives on this earth, and we will be spending forever in hell. Our midweek Lenten services this past year, we studied what I termed adversarial or hostile witnesses to Jesus' passion. That is, witnesses who, who weren't on Jesus' side. They weren't his friends. They were at best indifferent and at worst his enemies. But we, we learned throughout the Lenten season that their testimony, even though they were Jesus' enemies and many of them wanted him dead, their testimony all agreed to prove that Jesus is truly the Son of God. This morning we're going to look at a bit more adversarial testimony. The testimony of the, the men who wanted Jesus dead the most, the chief priests. Have you ever thought it kind of weird or odd that the chief universal symbol of Christianity is not the empty tomb where Jesus rose victorious, but a cruel tool of execution cross? That's the chief universal symbol of Christianity, right? We hang it in our churches, we hang them in our homes, some of us hang them around our necks. Isn't that a little weird? It's not weird, that's the way it has to be. On the cross is where Jesus won the victory over sin, death, and the devil once and for all. It is right that we put the cross at the center of everything we do, everything we believe. But if the story ended there at the cross on Calvary, then we could never really be sure of anything, could we? We could never be sure if our sins were taken away. We could never be sure if God had accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. If the story ended at the cross, then Jesus was evidently just swallowed up by death just as everyone else is. If the story ended at the cross... We have no hope, we have no assurance, we have no eternal life. It's not exaggerating it to say that the fact of Easter is the most important thing in the world. It is the thing that determines everything else. And that's why the devil tries so hard to rip it away from us, to make us doubt or disbelieve the basic facts of Easter. And he does that through lies. Now you might think it's weird that men, people, human beings, who know they're going to die, and, and who know that the only hope that they have is that Jesus rose from the dead, you might think it's strange that, that men would go along with the devil's lie. Why would they do that? Why would the chief priest go along with the devil lie, devil's lie? Why would they lie about what actually happened? Well, as far as I can tell from studying these words, the, the reason the chief priest did it was twofold. First, to maintain their power and authority. If Jesus rose from the dead and it was discovered that they were the ones responsible for putting him to death, well, you can imagine how furious the crowds would be. They would be mobbing at their doors, crying for their murder, crying for their deaths. Uh, the second reason that people will deny the resurrection of Jesus is to quiet that guilty conscience, that nagging voice in their heads. In the chief priests, it must have been nagging at them, right? Did we 
really kill the Son of God? People today will deny the resurrection for the same reason. They have a nagging voice in their head, that voice that each of us has that says, one day you're going to die, and one day you're going to have to answer to your Maker. What is your answer going to be? You know that nagging voice, don't you? And so the, the chief priest came up with a lie. Technically, it's called the stolen body lie. They claimed that Jesus' disciples broke into the tomb while the soldiers were sleeping and stole Jesus' body away. There's a problem with that theory. The body still has to be buried somewhere, right? It's got to be somewhere. This was the first lie told about Jesus' resurrection, but it's certainly not the last. There's another theory that goes like this. There was an angry gardener, and he didn't like these women and these disciples coming into his garden, and so he broke into the tomb, and he stole Jesus' body, and he put it in an unmarked tomb. Well, again, the body has to be somewhere. It could be produced, right, as proof that Jesus was still dead. There's another theory called the swoon theory, which states that when Jesus was taken down from that cross, he hadn't actually died. And when they laid him in the cool of Joseph's tomb, he revived. Well, that would be really shocking because the Roman soldiers stuck a spear into his side and blood and water came out. And these Roman soldiers were no amateurs. If they knew anything, it was how to kill someone. There's another theory that goes like this, that it was all a mass delusion, kind of a mass hallucination on the part of the disciples. They, they kind of all had this same madness going through their minds that, that their, their rabbi, their teacher, had actually risen from the dead. Kind of like the mass delusion that is going around in our society today. You know the one that's going around, right? That a biological man can be called a woman. That is a mass hallucination, a mass delusion, it is not true. The devil tries to concoct all of these different lies to undermine our faith, to lead us to doubt what happened 2,000 years ago, and to lead us to doubt that when we die, we also will die from the dead. You know what I think is the most interesting part about all of those different theories that try to explain away Jesus' resurrection is? Did you notice the one thing that they all have in common? Not a single one of them denied that on Easter morning, that tomb was empty. Every one of them agree on that single fact. On Easter morning, the tomb in which Jesus had been laid was empty. Isn't that strange? I mean, wouldn't that be the easiest way for the enemies of Christianity to prove that the resurrection is not real? Just produce the body. Here's the body. He's still dead. Look, it's all a bunch of baloney. It's all made up. But they didn't do that. Because the chief priests knew better. It's kind of interesting how the chief priests go about this, right? There's a, there's a mountain of historical evidence that proves exactly what happened on that first Easter. Now, I could go through all the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' disciples, the 500 that he appeared to after his resurrection. He all he appeared, but that's, that's really for a different sermon. Tonight, I'd like, or today, I'd like to present to you the four, four 
bedrock circumstantial evidences that prove that on Easter morning that tomb was empty. The first one is this, how, how the chief priests went about this. Now, if you were them and you were, you were, you were dead set to prove that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, that he didn't rise from the dead, and the soldiers came to you and said, uh, we got a problem, yeah, his body is gone. And you really believed that the disciples had stolen it, wouldn't your reaction be, well, go find him. Go find the disciples, ask them where they hid the body, and bring it back to us. But that wasn't their reaction at all, was it? They handed over a bribe and said, go tell people that this is what has happened. That's a strange reaction, isn't it? Because they knew better. They knew what had really happened at that tomb. Think of the disciples. Remember what they were like on Good Friday, Monday, Thursday? They were staunch heroes, right? They stood by Jesus. They wouldn't let any fear rip them away from Jesus. No, that's not true. That's not accurate. They were scaredy cats. They were sniveling cowards. They ran away from Jesus at the first hint of danger. They locked themselves in a room for three days out of fear that the same Jews who had killed Jesus would come after them and try to kill them. They don't seem like the type of people who would dare storm a a sealed tomb that is guarded by Roman soldiers. They were in hiding. That wasn't in their character. But related to that, a great change did overtake them, didn't it? They went from sniveling cowards to bold confessors, and it barely took a day. How does that happen? What can explain this change that takes them from cowardly hiding in a locked room to going out into the, the Jerusalem, into the temple, and proclaiming Jesus Christ cru- crucified and risen. What can explain that? Or think about this one. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection was Pentecost. There was a mass conversion of 3,000 people. Now, there's no way that would have happened, and there's no way that the chief priest didn't hear about this. There's no way it could have happened if the chief priest said, oh, so, so you guys are going to start following Jesus now. That's great. Here, I just have one thing I want you to consider. Walk with me. Let's go to this tomb. Exhibit A, Jesus' body. He is not worth believing. But they didn't do that. They couldn't do that, did they? Because they knew the truth, that the tomb was empty. The Jews, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, they concocted a lie to try to deny what they knew to be true. They bribed the soldiers to tell the world that his disciples had stolen his body, but they were missing the most important piece of evidence, Jesus' body. They knew what had happened. They couldn't deny it. And their adversarial testimony tells us what really happened that day. That tomb was empty. Jesus was risen, proving that he truly is the Son of God and our Savior. Why did I go into such detail bringing up this evidence that proves that the tomb was empty on Easter morning, you may be wondering. Because Easter changes everything. Easter determines everything in our lives now and eternally. The empty tomb means Easter is not trivial. That it is not about Easter bunnies. It is not about pastel dresses. It is not about Cadbury eggs. 
Don't get me wrong. Go ahead and enjoy that stuff if you want. Well, don't enjoy the Cadbury eggs. We, we agreed that those are nasty. Uh, go ahead and enjoy them. But don't let them distract from the real meaning of Easter. The empty tomb means that Easter is not spiritual, merely spiritual. Jesus isn't living on in our hearts. He is living on at the right hand of God where He rules everything for the good of His people. And He is present right here with us as He promised wherever two or three gather together in His name. The empty tomb means that what we do here in this church and churches around the world, while it may not seem like much, all you saw was a bit of tap water and a couple words, it means that this is powerful and effective. These are the ways that God has chosen to work faith, to save people and forgive sins in this world. It means that when a sinful man stands before you and says, as a called servant of Christ and by His authority, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, your sins are not only forgiven here, they are forgiven before God in heaven. It means that at that font a few minutes ago, James was washed of all his sins. He was made a child of God. And Andrew and Kristen, you can take great comfort in that fact because, you know what, God loves James even more than you do. And as any parent will tell you in the, you know, the, 30 seconds or so in every 24-hour period where you can't be watching James, God is. And he, he loves him even more than you do. You can be sure that he is a child of God and raise him with that identity. In a world where people seem to be having identity crisis all over the place, you can assure him his whole life. And Amanda, as sponsor, you can do the same. No matter what anyone says, James, you are a child of God. It means that when you come up here to receive a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine, that is Jesus' true body and blood for the forgiveness of all of your sins. The empty tomb means that every word in this book is true. From its testimony to the origins of the universe to its prophecies regarding how this universe will end, it's all true. It's all trustworthy. Which means that we don't have to mumble around fumble around like the rest of the people in this world in, in some kind of a, a mysterious and murky relativism, this postmodern age that we're living in, where it seems like up is down and down is up, where men are women and women are men, where truth is called a lie and the lies are called the truth. We don't have to listen to that nonsense. We don't have to listen to that garbage because we have God's Word. We have the truth. But what's most important is that the empty tomb means that God did accept Jesus' sacrifice for sin. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. The empty tomb means that Satan cannot accuse us anymore. When Satan comes to you and accuses you and haunts you about some sin you've committed in the past, as we get older, when he comes to you and says, remember, you're going to die and you're going to have to answer for all the things that you've done, you can tell him, no, I'm not. Christ is risen. The empty tomb means that death has been swallowed up by life. The empty tomb means that our loved ones who have died in the faith are not dead. We will see them again. The empty tomb means that there is no reason for us to fear death. 
because it is nothing worse than going to sleep. The empty tomb means that Jesus will return to take us with him to paradise. And as we walk out those doors, the empty tomb means that today is not just a, a day, another day of God's grace, but it is another day for us to live for the one who died and rose for us. Truly, there is nothing more consequential than Easter. There is nothing more important than the single fact that on that morning, that tomb was empty. Kind of ironic, isn't it, that the chief priests, they just wanted one thing. They wanted Jesus dead, and they wanted him to stay dead. And they took a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money to make that happen. But what did they end up doing? Proving for all of history, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that on that Easter morning, Jesus' tomb was empty. That's the reality. And what does this reality mean? Say it with me. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.